Isaiah chapter 9. And uh, as you make your way there, I want to wish you a Merry Christmas. It's good to see, there you go, Merry Christmas. It's good to see many of you again. Long time no see for for some of you. Um, And I want to begin our time together. I know it's Christmas, um, but our... Are we deranged? Yeah, okay. I'm glad some of you are willing to admit it. I didn't have the heart to tell you. Um, I mean, are we delusional? Uh, is there something broken in, in our logic and in our, in our mind? Because I think many would say that we are. And the reason I say that is because we still believe... I still believe in the Lord Jesus Christ despite the way the world seems. Um, I think the world looks at us with a little bit of uh, uh, a little bit of uh, questioning our sanity because they would ask us, you see what's going on in the world, right? Like you see all the things that are that are hard and bad and dark, and you're still gonna spend this day celebrating your Jesus, your your God that you claim to worship, in light of all of that. Are are you crazy? And when we think about it, why do we celebrate Jesus still? I mean. If Jesus was only worth being celebrated based on where the world is and how the world is, uh, you know, maybe they might have a point. Um, are, are we deranged? Are we delusional? When we think about how dark the world is, how gloomy many of the situations seem, it would do us well to consider again the context in which the promises of a Messiah were made. When Isaiah prophesies to the people of Israel, saying that there is someone coming who's going to be born of a virgin, and there's going to be a child who is born, he is not making those promises, as it were, in the brightness of a noonday sun, in a garden where there's a breeze that's neither hot nor cold, In fact, when we look at Isaiah chapter 9, we see that Isaiah is making a prophecy in some very dark and gloomy times. When we look at Isaiah 9, our text this morning is one of the great messianic prophecies. It references a child being born, and Jesus ultimately fulfills this prophecy. And we know this because Matthew, the gospel in his gospel, quotes this passage explicitly in Matthew 4, verses 14 through 17, saying that Jesus fulfills this prophecy. So we're going to work through this text, and we're going to talk about Jesus. This text teaches us about the ministry of Jesus. And so when we study this morning, I want us to, to ask, what can we learn from Isaiah concerning Christmas? What does Isaiah have to teach us about Christmas? And if you leave here with nothing else in our brief time together, I want you to consider this. This is the main idea, the main takeaway I want you to consider. Jesus comes to deliver us from darkness and death 
and he will because he comes to reign forever as the Prince of Peace. Let me say that again. Jesus comes to deliver us from darkness and death, and he will because he comes to reign forever as the Prince of Peace. Now, I've obviously decided we're, we're going to focus on that title in this text of Jesus, the Prince of Peace. We could, we could spend hours examining just the names, right? Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. But I think as we look at the world and maybe as you look at your own life, you're wondering, can I have peace? Can I have peace that surpasses all understanding? Can I have a peace that no matter what it looks like out there, that there is someone who is on the throne, someone who is in charge, and they are someone who brings peace. And so I want us to look at Isaiah chapter 9, beginning in verse 1. It says, nevertheless, now notice the, the language here, okay? Let's not skip over to the prophecy per se, but, but look at the language of here. Nevertheless, the gloom of the distressed land will not be like that of the former times when he humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the future, he will bring honor to the way of the sea, to the land east of the Jordan, and to Galilee of the nations. Verse 2, the people walking in darkness have seen a great light. A light has dawned on those living in the land of darkness. You have enlarged the nation and increased its joy. The people have rejoiced before you as they rejoiced at harvest time and as they rejoice when dividing spoils of war. For you have shattered their oppressive yoke and the rod of their shoulders and the staff of their oppressor just as you did on the day of Midian. For every trampling boot of battle and bloodied garments of war will be burned as fuel for the fire. Now, verse 6, for a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will be upon his shoulders, and he will be named Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. The dominion will be vast, and its prosperity will never end and he will reign on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish and sustain it with justice and righteousness from now on and forever. The zeal of the Lord of armies will accomplish this. So did you see the context in which Isaiah gives this prophecy? He talks about gloom and darkness in verse 1, and that's really a carryover from Isaiah chapter 8, if you look just above it, in verse 22, what does it say? They will look toward the earth and see only distress and darkness and gloom of affliction, and they will be driven into the thick of darkness. God is talking about this coming uh, judgment, and when they come to Israel, they'll see Israel in darkness. If you go back just a few chapters in chapter 5, in verse 20, the Lord describes Israel as this, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who substitute darkness for light and light for darkness. So Israel is exchanged the light for darkness. They're living in darkness. They're under darkness. 
If you skip just a few verses ahead to verse 30, it says that there will be a day when one looks at the land and there will be darkness and distress. So things are not going well in Israel. There is sin running rampant. There is promised judgment coming. And yet in this context of darkness and distress, darkness and gloom, we see those great words of verse 2. Look at what it says. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwell in the land or live in the land of darkness. So the prophecy is addressed to these people in darkness, not to the people who have it all together, not to the people who are righteous and, and do nothing wrong, but to those who live in the darkness, those who breathe in the darkness, those who walk in the darkness. But God says there will be a light. I think about Genesis chapter 1, that great reversal where it's darkness and there's, there's a void and, and God speaks and says, let there be light right there will be light and so isaiah comes along and he says those who have waited through the darkness will come to this reality of a dawn there will be a, a dawn that comes up and there will be a light and then they will experience it if you remember last week remember in first i mean in john chapter one and jesus is light and life and it says that light shines in the darkness, and yet the darkness did not overcome it. So we said, first of all, Jesus came to deliver us from the darkness. He says a son will be born, and those living in darkness will see a great light. I don't want us to miss the fact that this promise is made to those in darkness. We don't continue to celebrate Christmas despite the darkness. It's not as if we're trying to hold on to this tension and say, well, I know things are really bad, but I'm just going to keep doing this because I don't want to admit I'm wrong. No, we keep celebrating Christmas because the very promise was made in times of darkness and gloom. It upholds the spirit of Christmas that even when it's dark outside by 430, even when we see the darkness in the world, we still know that a light is coming. There is coming a day when light will shine out forever, not just physically. Remember, you go to the end of Revelation. What happens? In the end of Revelation, it says there is no need for what? The sun. John Milton and one of his uh, poems, uh, An Ode to Christmas, says that the son was ashamed when Jesus was born because he now found out that he was an inferior light. So light will come, and Jesus has come to deliver us from darkness. But notice the light. It says a great light and a dawn. Sometimes we think about the hope of Christmas and the hope of Jesus is like the smoldering wick. Like, like if you were to take one of these candles and walk through the darkness, like this is, this is the, the little bit of hope that we have in the darkness. There's all this darkness and we have this little bit of hope. But what does Isaiah say? They've seen a great light. A light has dawned. So it's not the difference between, you know, all the darkness and the candle. It's a difference between all the darkness and the blazing sun. There's no comparison. The darkness cannot stand. Maybe we need to stop thinking about Christmas as 
we're holding, you know, I know we did the candlelight service, but, you know, we're holding our, instead of thinking about that, the Christmas is the coming of the blazing sun into the darkness, just bloop, drop down into a dark world. It's not like a Christmas tree light, but it's like the sun breaking in the horizon. Have you ever had any trouble staring at a candle? Can you stare at this candle right here? Okay. Now, what happens when you stare at the sun? You shouldn't. Just FYI. Don't know if you didn't know that. But don't, kids, don't stare at the sun. Okay. But you can't, right? That's, that's the difference we're talking about here. This light dawning. So not only is there going to be light, but notice in verses 3 and 4, and really in verse 3, there's going to be joy. He says, you have enlarged the nation and increased its joy. The people have rejoiced before you as they rejoice at harvest time and as they rejoice when dividing spoils. So don't miss this. He, Isaiah is saying this light is going to come. And though you're in darkness, it's going to bring, bring light. And then you're going to rejoice. Why? Because the light dispels the darkness. But not only that, this light brings joy. Look at the two metaphors that he uses. He uses one of harvest, and then he uses one of victory. So Jesus comes into our dark world, and he brings light. He, he comes to bring the harvest, remember? Pray to the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into his harvest, because the laborers are few, but the harvest is plentiful. He comes to, to reap a harvest, and he comes to be victorious. So now, but don't, but don't miss this, okay? God's people are walking in darkness, and then all of a sudden Isaiah says, this child is going to come, and then because of this child, you are going to rejoice as if you had just won a war. You're going to rejoice as if you had labored all year for a harvest and reaped it. Like you fought this battle and you won. So the word that we use for that is grace. God comes to those in darkness and he says, boom, now you share in what I accomplish, what I give. There will be joy. Is there nothing that causes more joy? And should it not be the source of our joy to know that we were sinners separated from a holy God? That we deserve nothing but death. But because of what Jesus did. And because of the work of God in our heart. To make us alive. To, to be born again. We're converted. We trust Christ. We're declared righteous. And then we're given all the spoils of Christ's victory. And we're given a joy based on him. And so God promises that there will be light where there was darkness. There will be rejoicing where there is weeping. There will be abundance where there was scarcity. So when we say Jesus came to deliver us from the darkness, that's what he's talking about. So he comes to deliver us from darkness, but not just darkness. But he also comes to deliver us from death. Look at verse four, verses 4 and 5. How can there be, now notice, maybe your translation says this, but in my translation in the CSB, verses 4, 5, and 6, both all start with the word for. 
So these are explanations for why there's going to be light in the darkness. Why is there going to be great joy? Why is there going to be spoils of war? What are the reasons? And he gives three. The first reason is, for you have shattered their oppressive yoke and the rod of their shoulders and the staff of their oppressor, just as you did on the day of Midian. So how is he going to deliver us from death? Well, first of all, he's going to shatter all oppression of his people. When Jesus comes to set us free, he comes to set us free from the oppression of our own flesh, that we enslave ourselves because of our wayward desires. He comes to set us free from the oppression of the enemy, of Satan and his minions. He comes to set us free from the oppression of the world. So he comes just as he did in Midian. In other words, there will come a day when all oppression will cease. Just think about that. No more government coercion. No more unrighteousness masquerading as righteousness. No more being killed, robbed, or beaten because of what you believed. No, there will come a day when he will shatter, now notice the language, shatter their oppressive yoke. Jesus comes to his people and he says what? Come to me all you who are weary and heavy laden, heavy burden, and I will give you rest for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Jesus sees us in our burden with our sin and with the darkness of the world. And Jesus loves us so much that he doesn't just come and say, hey, that burden, man, that that looks tough. No, he takes it, he removes it, and he shatters it. So there will come a day when in this coming of Jesus that every oppression will be undone. He says, just as you did on the day in Midian, and that's a reference to when the Midianites were persecuting God's people as they were going into the promised land and God destroyed them. But then look at verse 5, it keeps going. Not only is he going to do that, but there's going to be an enjoyment of the victory. Look at verse 5, for every trampling boot of battle and every bloody garment of war will be burned as fuel for the fire. In other words, Jesus is saying to his people, look, you're going to be there with me at the end when we're burning all the stuff left over from the battle. (laughs) I mean, isn't that amazing? Jesus says, uh, Isaiah, Jesus, whatever, says, you're going to be there and all of them will be burned. You're the one that's left on the battlefield. So, Perhaps maybe we need to think of Christmas not just as a, this, this, um, you know, Christmas gives us the warm and fuzzies, right? Like we love Christmas and we love the idea of Christmas. But understand, Christmas was an act of war. It was an invasion. It was a king coming to battle against oppression to battle against injustice and unrighteousness, to battle against those who had set themselves up against him and his people. Jesus came to wage war 
on the devil, on our flesh, on sin, on death, on darkness, against all the powers and principalities that set themselves up against them. He came to wage war and defeat death. And how does he do that? Well, he dies and he rises again. So not only is there a delivery from darkness, there's a delivery from death. That, that Jesus fights the battle for us. He dies in our place and he rises again. But how can he do that? Well, in verse 6, we get the last four last explanation and it's because he comes to reign forever as the prince of peace so notice all of this is astonishing when you when you pause and reflect on it because here god has said there will be a light that shines in the darkness there will be joy there will be abundant harvest there will be battle victory there will be the removal of oppression and yoke. And if, if we didn't know the Christmas story, I think we could honestly say that what we would expect to show up is a full-grown man. Right? Uh, we would expect a, who's going to shine a light in the darkness? Who's going to wage war and be victorious? But what does verse 6 say? For a child will be born how can god deliver us from darkness and death by coming as a child he didn't come riding on a horse waging holy war he comes as a child you know we think about isaiah 55 verses 8 9 you know where the lord says for as high as the heavens is above so are my ways above your ways and my thoughts above your thoughts God sends a, a child, and the Lord Jesus comes, and he is this child. And so the great hope of verses 1 through 5, of everything that we've read, it might not be what we think. It's a child. Now notice what this child will do. It says, a child will be born for us, and a son will be given to us. Now, we treat children, infants, right, tenderly. And, and, and we understand there's not a lot that they can do on their own. But this child, it says what? And the government will be on his shoulders. Not a government, not one of the governments, but the government will be on his shoulders. What government? The government that's going to accomplish all this. The kingdom that is going to be able to do all of this. And it says he will be named and then there are these four names he will be called this is how he will be known here's how we can think of him wonderful counselor mighty god eternal father and prince of peace this name wonderful counselor it could be translated a marvelous counselor or a wonder of a counselor in other words darkness has its plans the world has its plans People have their plans, but, but this child, as God, has his own plans and his plans will succeed. He's so good at planning that his plans always come to fruition. Now, I don't know about you, but I am not that good of a planner. Nine times out of ten, my plans require a backup of a backup of a backup plan. 
But this is a wonderful counselor. He will be wise. He will be able to make good decisions that bring to fruition what he promises. He calls him a strong God or a mighty God. This, this language of strong God, this is used to describe warriors in the Old Testament. Mighty. Remember David's mighty men? David's mighty men. So not only is he wise, but he's strong. So this one that is coming to accomplish all these things is not only wise, but he has the strength to back it up. Have you ever met somebody that you thought, you know, if they threaten me, I'm pretty sure they could back it up. And you just kind of leave them alone, right? That's Jesus. He promises to do this, and he has the strength to do it. Now, when we get to the next one, it says he's the eternal father. And this sometimes causes consternation and confusion. Uh, but when we read it in light of the whole scriptures, it's really not that hard to understand. Isaiah is not confusing here the members of the Trinity. He's not saying that Jesus is the Father and the Father is Jesus. That's, that's heresy, okay? Uh, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are three persons in the one God, and they are not the same persons. So, understanding that, what is it that Isaiah is doing? Well, when we think about a, a father, there are other things that fathers do. And I think it would help us to think of it in two terms, the terms of lineage and the terms of office. Okay, Lineage and office. What does a father do? Well, he's at the fountain, right? You have children and, and you kind of spawn new streams and new fountains. And that's what this uh, this child that's what jesus came to do he came to start and um, produce new followers and new people right and, and there's a care and a love there that goes in that and it goes on forever but not only that there's an office it's it's something that he, he think of it this way he acts fatherly So he makes wise plans that will come to fruition. He has the strength to accomplish them. And he will be able to do it forever. As someone who produces a line and as someone who has the office, he, he does not vacate it. He is an eternal father. But then lastly, he is the prince of peace. There will be peace through Christ. Notice how Jesus is called a prince of peace. What does it mean to say a prince of peace? It means he's a prince who brings peace. It means he's a prince who has peace that originates from him. And as the prince of peace, notice what it says about his throne, his kingdom. It says his dominion will be vast. Its prosperity will never end. So Jesus comes to reign, and he will reign forever. So notice the language, right? Dominion, vast. Prosperity, never-ending. Enthroned on David's throne. Over his kingdom to establish it and sustain it with what? Justice and righteousness from now on and forever. That's how Jesus establishes peace. He comes to reign 
Remember what we said, Jesus comes to deliver us from darkness and death because he will come to reign forever as the Prince of Peace. And if we have any doubt, just think about these two words. I think this should encourage us. He comes to establish a kingdom and sustain it with justice and righteousness. When we look at the world around us, we long for justice. We long for truth to reign. We long for right to be done and for wrong to be undone and for for the guilty to be punished. I think it's safe to say that the great longing, as we said in the Advent reading, we, we long for that second coming. I think at the very root of all of our longing for the second coming are these two things. We long to see justice and righteousness. And if we have any doubt that God can accomplish this, we have that last line in verse 7. The zeal of the Lord of armies will accomplish this. The zeal, the energy, the passion, the drive of God will accomplish this. Your Bible may say the Lord of armies or Lord of hosts or Lord Sabaoth. I don't think it's a coincidence that Isaiah uses this language of the Lord of armies the Lord of hosts. Jesus comes to deliver us from darkness and death, and he will because he comes to reign as the Prince of Peace. There's a problem, though. How is it that he can come and establish justice and righteousness when we ourselves are unjust and unrighteous? If he is coming And in his coming, he comes to establish justice and righteousness and truth. Then that is not good for us who hate his truth and love our unrighteousness. And so all of this would be bad news for us if it weren't for the rest of the story. That Jesus does bring peace, not just cosmically, not just throughout creation, but he brings peace. Because he reconciles us to God. By Jesus bringing peace between us and God, everything that we've read is now good news to us. Listen to what Paul says in Colossians 1, verses 13 and 14. It says, He, that is God, has rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of the Son He loves. In him, in Christ, we have redemption, the forgiveness of our sins. So Jesus does come to uphold justice and righteousness. And the way he does that, even though we are sinners, is that he takes the punishment for us. The Bible says that this is how God is both the justifier and he is also just. How is it that God can do peace for us and and righteousness it's only because christ goes to a cross we were sinners separated from god because of our sin there was this great chasm we were his enemy but jesus comes 
God with us, born of a virgin, conceived of the Holy Spirit without sin, and he lives a perfect life, and he dies on the cross, and he rises again three days later. And so the gospel comes to us saying, rest in this. Jesus has provided the peace that you long for, the peace with God that you need. Trust in him and his work. And that's why in Romans 5.1, listen to what Paul says. Therefore, since we have been declared righteous by faith, because we believe in Jesus, we're declared righteous. Jesus comes to establish justice and righteousness, but we're unrighteous. So how can we have any hope to experience all the blessings of Isaiah 9? Because if we trust him, God declares us righteous in Christ. God looks at us and sees Jesus and his work for us. And so, Paul says, we have been declared righteous by faith. He says, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And so you might be here this morning, you're saying, all of that sounds good. I'm so glad Jesus is going to do all that. But, but there are things in my own heart that I don't have peace. And there, I don't know that I have that peace that you're talking about. I'm glad it's out there, but I don't. Listen, it starts with having peace with God. You cannot have peace out there and get that peace out there into here. True peace, lasting peace starts when Christ is in here and it flows out. In reality, when we have peace with God, we can be at peace with everything and everyone else. And so Christmas, I want you to think on this throughout the day. Christmas is that great work where Jesus comes to bring us peace, not just in the world, but peace between us and the Father, us and God. And when we trust him, we are declared righteous and we have peace with God. What does that mean? That we have peace with God. I want you to think about that throughout the day. That I have peace with God through the Prince of Peace. And now my great hope is that I will ultimately have full, true, and lasting peace. I want you to enjoy your Christmas. I want it to be a blessing to you. But more than, than the emotions and the, the sentiment, I want you to, to know that deep, 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 deep peace that Christ brings. It's a, it's a spiritual calm. Many of us approach our relationship with the Lord as Jacob wrestling God. We wrestle and we wrestle and we wrestle. But because of Jesus, we have peace with God. Peace with God looks like when you go into your, you ever, you go to your family on Christmas and you just sit down with a relative that you haven't seen in a while and you just start talking and it's just like old times. There's a, you're not trying to gain their attention. You're not trying to get them to like you. They love you. You just sit down and there is peace. My prayer for you this Christmas is that you will know the peace and that that peace 
would rule and reign in your hearts as we go into getting ready to go into another year. We have no idea what that year holds, but we know that we can have peace. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the peace that we have in Jesus. We pray that you would help us to know Christ and the peace that he provides and gives to us freely, lovingly, joyfully. Lord, I thank you uh, for uh, these people being willing to come on Christmas Day to worship you. And Lord, I, I know, I know, I know it's hard. I, I know that it, it's difficult to to get the kids ready and, and to get up and, and get dressed and, and all those things. And it's hard to sit here and, and keep the kids, try to manage that and, and listen and all those things. And uh, Lord, I, and we feel a sense of irony that, that in a message about peace, it, was, it seemed very unpeaceful in the pew. But God, we thank you that peace comes not through our circumstances, but comes from the Prince of Peace, who reigns in peace, who establishes peace, and brings us peace. Lord, our world needs to know the peace of God that surpasses all understanding. So as we go and we are around family, Lord, I pray that you would give us an opportunity and that we would be obedient to follow through and sharing that peace that God himself gives through Christ. We thank you and we praise you. In Jesus' name, amen.